Welcome again to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leaders Podcast. Here today for week three of the vision series, Just Like Barnabas, to talk about Acts 11, verses 19 through 24. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. I had a great time Sunday morning in the group I'm leading through this vision series. Uh, Like I suggested previously, I really challenged them hard to use the text each week to be in the Bible daily. Few of them did, I think, just based on their responses. I mean, I didn't make them raise their hands or anything, but just based on their reactions to my laying it out on the table, I assume it was a minimal bunch. And so I just redefined success for them. A success for me in this series is that all of you take seriously daily engagement with the scriptures. But what was exciting is I provided space at the beginning for them to challenge off of last week. I think. Um, historically in groups that I've led, sometimes I keep them disparate from one another week to week. And so I'm trying to overcome that in myself. And so the first part of the group, I said, were you encouraged last week? Did you encourage anyone last week? Of course, crickets. But like the good leader, I embraced the awkwardness until somebody had to break the silence. And then we ended up with six stories of encouragement. Uh, where the individuals in the group were able to encourage someone else. A couple were encouraging other believers, and a few were encouraging lost and searching people and was able to elevate that for all of them. And then I shared a story of how I was encouraged by someone to whom I'm ministering, where I, I'm the disciple maker. I am the one you know, with the authority or knowledge, so to speak, and yet this individual was encouraging to me. And so I continued to encourage the group to continue to be encouraging and so I was able to sync up the, the two weeks well. And then I did what I said I was going to do in last week's podcast is I began to contrast like Luke does in the text, Barnabas's faithfulness in giving all that he had. So he did what he said he did and he happened to give all of it. Whereas Ananias and Sapphira said they're going to give all of it and held some back and were punished. So we saw faithfulness and obedience. I used the other text I spoke about last week, which was that Deuteronomy 8 text, but I decided to insert a teaching moment in between the Acts 4-5 contrast and the Deuteronomy 8 contrast, because I want to begin to help this group understand that there's echoes of Christ in all that we do. So I don't know if you guys remember way, way back some time ago, I believe it was in the Christology series, or it might have actually been in the Transforming Truth Theology series we did a few years ago, but we talked about that Emmaus Road experience where Jesus makes the comment, this is Luke 24, around verse 27, I think, uh, maybe even later, actually, it might be in the 30s, but Jesus makes the comment that he unpacks for, or I guess Luke narrates the comment that Jesus unpacks for the two disciples there. Moses and all the prophets and how they reference to Christ. And so I wanted to train this group to hear echoes of Jesus and all of the Bible. Not that we discount historical context, which is why I repeatedly went back to Barnabas 
Ananias in that context. But I also wanted to demonstrate to them because I thought this might be one thing that's limiting them in their daily Bible reading is we ought to be hearing echoes of Christ in all of the scriptures ought to be hearing echoes of Christ. And so after I did that in Luke 24 and explained to them some general things, taught them what hermeneutics means, just means the science of interpretation. So I told them, here's your hermeneutical principle that Christ is elevated in all the scriptures and you can hear echoes of it, though don't divorce it from historical context. And then I went back and gave the Deuteronomy 8 passage and talked about pride and fear, how those limited us, um, how those limit us from giving, from being generous. And then I was compelled after I read Acts 4 again and was challenging them, listen for pride, fear, listen for echoes of Christ and his overcoming and Barnabas's nature. And I was talking about how Barnabas is a model for Christ and all of this. And it just struck me that this would be a great time for Philippians 2. And so I flipped to Philippians 2, made them go there with me and read about Christ humbling himself, not believing equality with God was something to be exploited or continuing to be leaned upon and instead emptied himself, becoming a man and was obedient even to death on the cross and was able to parallel that with Barnabas's obedience. So Barnabas was obedient to take the land, sell it and give it over to the early church for ministry. Christ was obedient to the point of death to like Barnabas gave up land. Christ gave up equality with God. Now, not in his true nature, but in his function, gave up that divine and material existence to become flesh, gave up much more than a piece of land. And instead of giving all the proceeds, he gave all over of himself in that he was obedient even to death on the cross and was able to really show them how Christ is echoed in the works of our biblical heroes. And I think they were edified by that. So I'm going to continue to hammer that this week. For me, with this group, week one was giving them the broader semantic or meaning range, the broad range of meaning, I guess if I was going to say like a human, the broad range of meaning of the word encouraging and tried to help them. They see that encouragement could be exhortation, could be a pleading. It could take a number of forms, but we're looking for that outcome of uplifting, upbuilding and restoration. Last week for me was teaching them the hermeneutical principle of Christ elevated in all the scriptures, but really doing what Luke did with the text, which is to contrast Ananias and Sapphira and talk about uh, generosity in that context. This week for me is going to be history week because I love the story of the church in Antioch. And I think we see Barnabas is affirming not just in his actions there, but in his actions there buttressed by how that church came to be. And so to find out how that church came to be, we got to hop back to Acts 6. And for those of you not on the Brentwood campus, um, you were cheated by your teaching pastor because we actually cover this text in the summer. I'm just kidding. Summer is when we do the things your pastor uh, wants you to know. And each preacher kind of plans where, uh, what they think their campus needs to hear in those moments. We happen to go through this text during our summer and each of the other campuses did, uh, did their things and all really high quality, really good stuff. Uh, preachers really love, <laughs> they really love the summer. They love all year, but they really love the summer because they can sort of get into their wheelhouse. And so what happens here in Acts five and six is that some of the, uh, Greek widows, that had come to the faith were receiving less, it would seem, were receiving less provisions than the Jewish widows who were in the faith of Christ. The way is called. 
And so these Greek widows were um, getting unequal distribution and didn't have enough to live on. And so they were bugging Peter about all of this. So here's a good example of what Eddie Mosley, my boss here on the Brentwood campus, called share the load. And Peter says, look, I'm called to preach the gospel. I got to go. I got to go share the gospel with people and preach. That's what I do. Appoint for yourself seven men to take care of this. And you guys distribute it the way it ought to be distributed. You don't need me for that. Uh, so they share the load. And one of the individuals that they called up was Stephen. So to give you the actual text is Acts 6-2. And I'm reading from the, I'm reading from the ESV here in Acts 6-2. Not because I love the ESV more than others, just because my Bible software I use syncs up best with the ESV. Uh, and it'll put it in outline form for me and diagram all the sentences for me without me having to do anything. So it's purely a function of laziness. Why, why I use the English Standard Version as opposed to the Brentwood Baptist, uh, Christian Standard Version. In any case, same, same idea. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit. So remember Barnabas, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So Barnabas wasn't one of these men, but you can see the similar, similar traits, good repute, good reputation, full of the spirit. And so they chose Stephen. Now look at the descriptor of Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So again, full of the spirit. So Stephen is one of these seven men chosen to help make more equitable the distribution of provisions and resources to the widows, regardless of their ethnicity. In verse eight of chapter six, it says Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenaeans and of the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Uh, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So again, don't lose sight of Antioch. So we're, we're trying to get to the church in Antioch. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from sharing the load here where these widows weren't getting the proper distribution. Stephen was one of the men full of the spirit raised up to do that. He does wonders. He is attacked and um, slandered and then eventually set up in a phony trial so that he is ultimately stoned and preaches this incredible sermon in chapter seven before he is stoned to death. And of course, one of the men there at his stoning, and this is important, was none other than Saul. Verse 57 of chapter 7 says this, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. So this is against Stephen's sermon. And they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So 
church at Antioch, we see Stephen raised up, Stephen martyred, and we see Saul present listening to Peter, listening to Stephen's sermon and seeing Stephen stoned uh, from this phony trial of which he was a part. And then Saul, because of that, doesn't repent and come to faith due to Stephen's obedience. He doubles down on his uh, savagery against the early church. And so Saul approved of his execution, verse 1 of chapter 8 says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles stayed, all the other guys split. Devout men buried Stephen, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And remember, all this is not only in the context of the Antioch church, but in the context of Barnabas affirming the Antioch church. So knowing their origin brings some some, some really deep roots to this affirmation by Barnabas. So we jump back in at our text in chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrenae, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, meaning just the Greeks, they spoke to Greek folks, Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted, exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Not so surprisingly, the word exhort is parakaleo, which was our word from encourage two weeks ago. Nevertheless, so form of encouragement. So he's still encouraging, but we're talking about here in the context of being an affirmation. So he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Same description for Stephen. All right. And then we stop at verse 24 in the actual sermon text. But I would go ahead and add the next line as well. And so the end of 24 says a great many people were added to the Lord. And then verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for the whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. How stunning is that? That the persecution of Stephen is what triggered the dispersion, the the migration away from Jerusalem because of the persecution there, which is how the church at Antioch got started when these folks from Jerusalem showed up and started preaching Jesus and Gentiles got saved. And Saul was the one approving of Stephen's stoning. He was there. He was the one holding the coats. The coats were laid at his feet. And now he's the one that Barnabas goes and gets to come teach the church at Antioch, which was birthed through his sin. In some ways, is rather stunning, the, the full circle of all of this. And so how does knowing that history then help us understand affirmation? is to see that even in persecution, even in darkness, even when situations are bleak, God reigns supreme over all of it and is weaving something bigger and better than we could ever imagine. Think about these folks 
Stephen was uh, the man full of the spirit, full of faith, the man of great reputation doing miracles, and then he's killed. Think about the discouragement that must have pervaded the community there. These people that fled must have been discouraged that, A, their brother died. They, they lost him. He was murdered in this phony trial. But then also just that the, the church seemed weak at, at the moment. And here they are fleeing. All the excitement of the newness of the kingdom of God probably didn't feel so great as they were fleeing Jerusalem. Land in Antioch, preach the gospel. The Jews don't really convert, but the Gentiles do. And they get this massive church in Antioch. And then Barnabas shows up to affirm them. And so I think we have two things happening. One, we have Barnabas's affirmation, which we ought to elevate. But then secondarily, we have the affirmation of the Holy Spirit and that these people were coming to faith. And then we get Paul or Saul, still called Saul here. Again, not a name changed, but just two different names. And Luke shifts in the middle and starts calling him Paul um, on the missionary journeys. But Saul, up until that point, uh, came and was encouraged to, and he taught them the gospel. So it's just, it's just rather stunning, all of the affirmation that happens here. And I think what we can do for our groups is give them some roots to say that our God is omniscient. Why does theology matter? Because we have a God who knows everything and is in control of everything. We have an omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign God, all-knowing, all-powerful, in-control God who is working something bigger. So there's moments where we probably feel like Stephen's friends and wonder why God is allowing evil upon us. And then just a few chapters later, I don't know what the actual time frame was. I mean, it was probably a good bit of time delay. Uh, but we see this church in Antioch from which Paul and Barnabas are sent on their missionary journey. And we really see the movement of the church in a major way coming out of this persecution of Stephen. So God, God really, I don't know, let's say enjoy sounds a little bit morbid in some ways. But God seems to shine really bright in the midst of evil by using it to, by using it for the purpose of kingdom expansion and using it for the purpose of elevating his glory and his son. So just like Barnabas was affirming to these people, we want to elevate that we can be, we can be affirming as well. We can exhort people. We can exhort people to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, to get into the immediate context of this passage, uh, notice what he affirms them on. He affirms them to be obedient. And I, I think this can be difficult at times because it makes me think in terms of church discipline, uh, which is not always pleasant. But I, I guess let me lament for a second and share a frustration with you. And I shared it with the group that I taught Sunday is that Satan attacks us most viciously and most effectively when we're at our messiest and dirtiest. Because it's in those moments when Satan has already lied, we've believed the lie, and we've transgressed our Lord in disobedience, that Satan begins his accusations and his shame piling. And we retreat from the word, we retreat from the Bible, we retreat from prayer, we retreat from community. And um, it's in those moments when we're the most vulnerable and at our weakest. And church discipline, as taught in the scriptures, is for the sake of restoration. That it's with your groups that you ought to be able to, that you ought to be most comfortable and most 
at ease with sharing your messiness because they want to restore you. They don't want to judge you and grind you into the ground with their heel. Uh, and because of your sin, you're already broken. You're already repenting. You know you've sinned. You don't need people to double, triple, quadruple down on the fact that you've transgressed God in disobedience. But our groups ought to be places of restoration. Now, many of our groups tend to be pretty large, 30, 40 people. Um, I know a lot of the groups you guys are in, 15, 20 people. Maybe it can be a little awkward to confess sin here. So what I encourage you to do is to develop subgroups out of your larger group. For every group that I have that's over about 12, I like to build in subgroups. And it's better if these groups are gender-based because I think we're more likely to confess sin in a gender-based group. And I, and in those moments, I think we can be affirming of individuals to exhort them to remain faithful with the Lord with steadfast purpose. Uh, if we don't create the kind of communities in where sin can be confessed, I think is when we lose people, when we don't track with people, when the gospel, um, not becomes stale, but becomes ineffective because every time we're willing to share it, we're living as hypocrites because we haven't repented, confessed, um, and been restored by the community of faith. So I encourage you in your group, if it's necessary to create gender-based subgroups, and we'd love to help you with that. I know your discipleship minister on your campus would love to help you with that. But we got to have communities. James tells us in his letter, chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We ought to be confessing sin. We know we sin. We ought to be confessing it to someone. If your group is not a community in which someone can confess their sin, then it is on us as leaders to build or to provide on-ramps to communities in which sin can be confessed to one another there. I mean, that's not just confess in your room. Let's confess to one another and then pray for one another. That you may be healed. It's for the sake of restoration. It's not for the sake of judgment. So I encourage you. Part of being affirmation for us as leaders is that we are creating communities which can restore each other. That's, that's part of affirming is restoring to remain steadfast, to remain faithful in that steadfast purpose that Barnabas talks about. What am I going to do with my group? I am going to talk about that history. I am going to talk about uh, affirmation in the midst of trials and suffering. I am going to elevate Barnabas again as affirming here. I'm going to elevate the value of community to affirming one another. And I am going to encourage them. This group has care groups. This group averages anywhere between 33, 35 regularly. And um, probably have 50 that are involved in the community. But 30, I would say 33, 35 on a regular Sunday morning. Uh, are they confessing sin to one another? Do they have communities for that? They have a great care group structure built in that I think can handle that task as well. So I'll probably bring that up and encourage them to that end. Lots of places you can go with affirmation. Um, Share stories of affirmation in your own life. Share stories of people who have exhorted you in your life. Share stories of how you've exhorted or affirmed others in their life. Provide space for your communities to talk about this stuff. Remember the historical context here that um, this was in Antioch, what was in Cyprus, the area. So Barnabas was familiar with the area um, because of his generosity previously, because of his reputation, the Jerusalem council felt comfortable to send him down there. 
and I want to share with you from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. It's just become one of my favorites. It's a real accessible commentary. I mean, there's all kinds of commentaries out there that hit the grammar, that hit different aspects. But this one's, I think, a good balance between grammar, the issues around the text, but then also keeping the main things the main things, where it's, where it's very much usable in our in our groups as we encourage others and as we learn ourselves. It reads, concerning verse 23 to 24, Here was a crisis point in the history of the early church, for much dependent on Barnabas's reaction, counsel, and report, not only for the life of the church at Syria and Antioch itself, but also for the health of the church at Jerusalem, and for the success of the later advances of the gospel through Paul's missions. With evident feeling, Luke says of him, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And as a result of his response, the work that was started at Antioch was enabled to go on with many brought to Christ. So this is a hinge for the church. We've already seen from Acts 2 up until this point, the gospel progressed from Pentecost to the Jews to the Samaritans, which were um, ethnically mixed Jews, and then now progressed even more fully to Gentiles. We've already had the Cornelius story, which you know, gives Peter interaction to the Gentiles. But now we have a mixed congregation here of Jews and probably primarily Gentiles, uh, Greek people who had come to faith out of paganism. And we have this hinge on Barnabas, who seeing the grace of God, I mean, Barnabas was tuned in, it would seem. Uh, he was tuned into what the Spirit was doing. He was full of the Spirit, and he assessed the situation as being of God. And he was able to encourage them and then go get Saul, who he trusted. Um, even though there may have been some questions still floating about, uh, he was obviously known by the folks at Jerusalem. He had already suffered for the gospel in some ways that they knew of and brought him here. And this is really where we get the missionary journeys and the rapid expansion of the gospel. So it's such a hinge point in not only the book of Acts, but also in the history of the church. And it was, it was all Barnabas and it was really a simple faith. It was a simple faith and a simple affirmation. Yeah. What's going on in Antioch? That's God's stuff there. That's God's stuff happening. And I think we can encourage our groups to say, if Barnabas were to show up into our group, would Barnabas say, it's God's stuff happening in this group? If Barnabas were to show up at your campus, would Barnabas say, yeah, it's God's stuff happening at this campus? If Barnabas were to show up and talk about the Brentwood Baptist family as a whole, would he say, yeah, there's God's stuff happening here. This is a good thing. I hope so. And if we're not, I pray that we're willing to submit ourselves James 5, 16, confess, repent, so that we can become the people we need to become for the sake of the kingdom in Middle Tennessee and beyond.